Welcome to Episode 2 of the podcast, everyone. I'm Chad Norman, Manager of Internet Marketing here at BlackBot and host of this semi-monthly, bi-weekly, inter-annual podcast. Since I'm constantly thinking about the Internet, I thought I'd start off this episode by sitting down with one of our web experts. So joining me today is Steve McLaughlin, Practice Manager for BlackBot Interactive. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Hey, Chad. I thought we'd get together today and talk a little bit about websites. BlockBot Interactive actually implements websites for nonprofits across the world, and actually getting them up and running isn't the difficult part. The tricky thing is managing that relationship long term. So once a nonprofit gets a site up and running, and the online donations are rolling in, then what? What's next? It's a good question. You know, I think a lot of the organizations that we work with are, are those that we run into. They they maybe had a site for a while. They've done a couple of things on the web and. And their reaction is, okay, great, we can now move on to other things. We, we've got online donations. What more do we possibly have to do? Or we've got content. This is great. And I think a lot of them miss out on a lot of the opportunities that they would have to communicate with constituents. You know, it's certainly using the web is not just about collecting online donations. It's really interacting with constituents, whether they're volunteers, they're board members, um, they're people who are just new to the area and want to learn more about your particular organization and, you know, rolls all the way up to it. It's major donors using your website to get information and do research about um, how you're uh, fulfilling your mission. Right. So if we're moving past online donations, which is sort of the bread and butter of maybe a nonprofit's website, what exactly are you talking about past sort of the, uh, the treasure, sort of past the online donations? Well, one of the ways that we kind of think about how people interact with nonprofit organizations is they give in three different ways. Either they give their time, they give their talent, or they give their treasure, if you want to think about it that way. So when you think about somebody giving their time online, it can be as simple as they subscribe to a newsletter. And their sole interaction with that nonprofit is they get this newsletter on a, on a periodic basis, they read the content, and that's the time investment they make or they subscribe to an RSS feed. They, they listen to a podcast, something like this. And so that's how they are interacting with that organization is just by sharing their time alone. The other way to think about it, too, is individuals who give their talent to the organization, right? So I'm on a board or I'm a volunteer at uh, an organization that I'm helping out. I've got a special set of skills. Those are skills that I'm contributing to the organization. So if I can go online, find out about volunteer opportunities, sign up for them, um, indicate my preferences, interact in a more personalized manner with the organization. Or I'm a board member and I want to get the meeting minutes or the meeting agenda before the meeting takes place. And I can download all this stuff online and when I'm on the plane or the train or the automobile, I can take a look at this stuff. Then I'm interacting with the organization using my talent, but I can do all this stuff self-service online. And then obviously it leads into um, more of the treasure aspect of doing things online. And again, it, moving beyond, great, we have a donation form, big deal. Um, it's thinking about, well, could we do a recurring gift program online? Um, do something that's maybe a little bit different than our, our traditional fundraising activities. Uh, there's some things we can specifically do around stewarding major donors, right? So somebody's made a major contribution to the organization, um, typically where things fall off um, the cliff is on the stewardship side. So can you send them updates? Can you give them personal content? Um, can you show the impact of that gift all online? And so that's spreading this across 
time, talent, and treasure as opposed to, great, we have a donation form and occasionally we send email out to our constituents. How has uh, sort of the implementation of Web 2.0 technologies really helped uh, sort of the talent aspect of this? I mean, there's, there's one thing to get involved by volunteering and things like that, but another thing is to actually contribute to a nonprofit's website. So how has this affected sort of the, the talent portion of this? Well, it, it's a good question. You know, in general, I think a lot of organizations that are kind of progressive have moved down this path of Web 2.0, much more personalized, user-contributed content, user-contributed interaction, where, let's say, you know, they've got a, a strong interest in the goals or objectives of that particular nonprofit, whether it's on an advocacy side. And so they've really engaged in starting to do, you know, writing congressmen, writing senators, doing those types of activities, using online tools and technology to do that. But I think if you, you know, for every organization that's engaged in some of this Web 2.0 stuff, there's dozens who are still stuck on Web 0.5, Web 1.0. And I think a lot of that has to do is traditionally within a nonprofit organization, the development or advancement offices haven't owned the website or they haven't been invited to sit at the table with with the marketing or the IT groups or the program groups to talk about, hey, we should have a portion of the website that's devoted to us or, you know, why is it that the aspects around supporting the organization or things that that may help with time, talent, and treasure, why are those buried at the bottom of the page or six levels deep and really difficult for people to get at? So I think that's at the heart of, of some of these problems as well. If your organization is implementing time and talent and treasure sort of onto the website, how do you sort of measure these? Treasure's easy. It's money. How do you sort of measure the time and talent put in by your donors? It's a fair point to make. I think with a lot of organizations, it all starts with you have to have some sort of baseline. In order to measure how well you're doing, you need to know where you stand today. And so when it when you look at an entire website, it's as basic as, how much traffic do we get today? And I'm not talking about hits. Um, there's the old adage that HIT stands for How Idiots Track Statistics, right? Um, because HITs are a very skewed way of looking at web content. What you want to look at is page views and, more importantly, unique visitors. And there's a lot of widely available software that can help track this stuff. In addition to, there's a little company called Google, which produces uh, an online application called Google Analytics, which makes it very easy for nonprofits to go in and track these kinds of statistics. So you need some kind of baseline to start with. You know, how much traffic does our site get? When we send email, how many you know people is it going out to? How many people are reading those messages? How many of those are responding? You need to have some of those baseline statistics if you really want to measure success and, and figure out how far you've moved the needle. Um, but if that's something that you don't have the tools or the technology around or you know you want to kind of get started with things, is to start to look at, things in smaller increments of time. On the web, everything moves a lot faster, right? And so if you say, well, over the next 12 months, we want to have grow our email base from 200 people to 5,000, and we want this many, this percentage of people opening it, you probably want to not do that over a 12-month period of time. You want to do it, let's look at the first three months, and then let's look at six months, and then maybe nine months and 12 months, and more bite-sized chunks because you can look at the progress and make adjustments, right? Because something like email is, is very different than a direct mail piece. You send an email out, usually within 48 to 72 hours, you're going to know most of the results that you're going to get out of any one particular email campaign as opposed to direct mail. It may take months and months and months for you to really know how effective that particular campaign was. So when you're measuring some of these success factors, you need to look at it in smaller increments of time and make adjustments as well and not necessarily be surprised if, boy, this didn't turn out to be what we expected it to. We thought we put this great new content on the homepage about volunteer opportunities and nobody's going to it. You know, you can look at statistics 
statistics over a shorter period of time and say, well, what is it? Is it the copy? Is it the photo? Is there something about it? And it's a lot easier to change those types of things um, to maybe get some better results. While we have a captive audience, is there anything you'd like to plug? Are you out there speaking anywhere anytime soon in the industry? Uh, doing a couple of the e-tour sessions for the e-philanthropy foundation. They've got some upcoming sessions in Los Angeles, Indianapolis, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and a couple other locations. All right, Steve. Thanks for being on the cast today. Right, thanks, Chad. It's always great hearing from Steve, and I'm sure you'll see him back on the podcast in upcoming episodes. Moving on, I'd like to hand the cast over to Melanie Malonis from Public Relations here at BlackBot. Her recurring Getting to Know You segment features BlackBot customers talking about their organizations. Let's check it out. Today I'm joined by Tom Knox, the Executive Director of Resource Development for the Humane Society of the United States. Thanks for chatting with me today, Tom. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I know you have a very broad mission. Can you please give us an overview of your main campaigns and programs? Yes, that's true. Our, our, although our mission statement is short, what it encompasses is quite large. Our, our field of interest are really all animals, and our focus is to protect them the best that we can. We have several different campaigns set up that are our primary focus campaigns, such as dealing with animal fighting. We have a campaign on factory farming issues, campaign regarding fur we have some hunting campaigns going on. One of our most active this time of year is our seal hunt campaign, which is geared at helping people realize the cruelties involved with killing baby seals up in Canada for their fur. We have campaigns on horse slaughter that's going on around the nation. Those are, are the, the key ones that we focus on, but we're pretty broad, and we deal with most any animal that ends up being mistreated or abused in some fashion. And I know a lot of people, when they think of the Humane Society, automatically think of the animal shelters, maybe an experience they had adopting a family pet. Is your organization affiliated with the local Humane Societies? Each Humane Society is independent. Um, They have their own board, they have their own staff, and they are typically community-based. So we don't have an affiliation with them. We're not their national parent or anything like that at all because they are totally independent. What mm-hmm. we do is we tend to support the shelter operations that humane societies do in a variety of different ways. For instance, we have an annual event called an expo where we have four days of workshops on how to run shelters better and different techniques that can be used in shelters to, to make the care easier and, or at least better for the animals. We do a, a magazine for shelters that goes out monthly called Animal Sheltering, which highlights different issues. That, that folks in shelters face. So we do an awful lot of support for shelters, um, but we're not affiliated with them, as some people might think. And I understand you do have a four-star rating by Charity Navigator. Well, we're really pleased with that. We didn't have that rating a few years ago, and our board of directors was concerned that our cost of fundraising and cost of administration was higher than what they would like it to be. And to their credit, they decided it needed to be dealt with, so there were several steps taken to help reduce the cost of fundraising and the cost of administration so more could go back into helping the animals directly. Over the past couple of years, we've we've been able to bring that into alignment, so now we we do get the four-star rating, which we're really proud of. And I think your donors are taking note also. I I know you've received some notable gifts this year already. Yes, we're off to a pretty good start, which we're very pleased with. We have a couple $100,000 cash gifts that have come in, which is interesting. One of them came from a donor who we've been working with only for two years, and we got to meet this donor through one of the events that I mentioned that we do. 
where we have these cultivation events where our CEO comes and does a small talk in somebody's home. And there was a couple that attended that, and our follow-up work led to this a general gift to the HSUS of cash of $100,000, so we're really pleased with that. The other one was a more long-term donor who we were able to upgrade from a $25,000 gift to a $100,000 gift. We also have two separate $1 million bequest gifts that have been promised. We call them expected gifts because, fortunately, the people are still living, so it's something we will we'll wait upon, but we're, we're pleased to be included in their estate plans to the tune of a $1 million each. Wow, that's great, Tom. Okay, we're pleased with that, yes. And what are some of the biggest challenges you've faced in bringing in major implant gifts, and how have you dealt with them? We have a couple challenges. Uh, I came three years ago with the purpose of establishing this program at, at a national level. It was just a small program three years ago. We had two big challenges. One was that our donors didn't recognize us as a charity that could benefit from large gifts. They were used to giving $35, $100 a year, you know, consistent givers year after year after year, but never really approached about a major gift. And so our challenge early on was to help them realize the value of what a large gift could do for animals through the HSUS. The second challenge was that we didn't have any way that we were monitoring what we were doing with our major donors. So we had to establish a system, which is where we're really pleased to use Razor's Edge, so that we could actually monitor and track all the work we're doing with donors so that we can move them through our pipeline and you know, put a moves management system into place track and monitor and record what we're doing and, um, and, and help build that $35 donor into $5,000 donors, $10,000 donors, and, and even higher. And how many donors are you tracking in that major donor database? We have about 90,000 that are in our donor base out of our 10 million constituents. We've done some screenings and some wealth overlays, and we've selected out you know the top 90,000, of which are too many for our 11 people to deal with on a one-on-one basis, but there's some other marketing things that we do with these folks so that, so that they're in touch with us. Mm-hmm. And I understand you're in the planning stages for your next capital campaign uh, with so many wonderful campaigns that you're working on. How do you go about choosing which areas to focus on? When we do a campaign, it's, there's a couple things that we look at. I mean, there's not typically capital in the sense of brick and mortar, which is the traditional capital campaign. We look at issues, campaigns, and and so what we look at is, is what can we do if we had the funds to make a significant difference in a significant number of animals' lives. So we look for if we had, let's say, $20 million to pour into a specific campaign, which campaign would that be to where we could guarantee success, either the elimination of that issue or a significant reduction of it that would show to the donors the value of giving at the high levels that would be needed to um, do a campaign. So so we look at mission, we look at the results possible, and the number of animals that could be impacted positively if we were able to put that much of a resource behind the issue. That's wonderful, Tom. Best of luck with your campaign. Thank you. Is there anything else on the horizon that you'd like to mention? Well, we're always developing even further our, our program and. I think there are some things that we we have planned to do, for instance, spending a little bit more time working with estate planners and tracking our involvement with those folks and tracking their responses to to our efforts. That's something we'll spend a lot more time at. And with, you know, $90,000 in our donor base, I think we'll 
continue to expand our major gift team and add more gift officers as time goes on so that we can reach out better to those that have a passion for our cause. And if people would like to learn more or support your organization, where can they go for information? Well, they certainly could go to our website, which is a wealth of information. It's, it's very deep and very broad. It's um, simply www.hsus.org. And um, you can also email me at tknox at hsus.org, and I'll be glad to answer any questions people might have. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate you sharing your story with us today, and I wish you continued success. Well, thank you very much. A couple weeks ago, I attended the NATO conference in San Francisco. This is the development wing of the YMCA National Movement, and it was a great opportunity to meet folks and hear stories relating to membership issues. Traveling with us was Jim Bush, who spoke to a packed house about converting members into donors. Though he was speaking to a YMCA audience, Jim mentioned some great points that could prove useful to any membership-based organization. Things like hiring storytellers, seeking out mission moments to capture, and making storytelling part of the culture are important whether you're a YMCA or an aquarium. Let's listen in. Your staff covers so much more ground than you do. But a lot of times our frontline staff and, and even our professional staff don't necessarily know what our mission is and we don't walk the talk. We need to work with our staff train our staff, we have to hire for it first. We've got to hire people that want to tell the story. If they don't want to tell the story, they don't belong at the Y. And I know how hard it is to find somebody to work at 5 a.m. when you open. (laughs) Believe me, I know, because I've done it many, many times. We need to hire those people who want to do this. And we have to continually train for it. And we're going to talk in just a moment about what we mean in terms of training. We also need to seek out what I call mission moments. Every opportunity that we have, we need to identify a mission moment, and we need to make sure that's part of a story. We need staff that can take a mission moment, see it, and then convey it to a a, a prospective member or a member or another staff person. You also need to make storytelling part of your culture. When when the was that I've been at, where it's not part of the culture, you can tell. But when storytelling is part of the culture... You've got people talking the talk and walking the talk and telling those stories every day. I promise you, it's a great why to be in. Membership studies, by the way, show that our members aren't hearing the story. We see it every single year in our membership satisfaction surveys. At some point, we need to get serious about it. I think that's why the room's full. And we need to say, you've got to hear the story. But what is the story and how do we talk about it? That's where we're headed next. So we've talked now about using the opportunities that we have to storytell. And we can talk about that probably for another couple hours. But let's move on and talk about the second part of this. We tell the story. We tell as often as we can to as many people as we can in the right ways. When we do that, the next thing that we need to do, and we talked about this, Mary talked about this a moment ago, but step two is listening and collecting the right information. Uh, again, one of the things that, I, that I, was, I used to get discouraged about in my tour is that I'm not doing any of the talking as when I'm being toured. I'm doing a lot of listening. Well, actually, I'm not doing a lot of listening uh, because I get kind of bored because they talk all the time. And, and one of the things that, that I get really excited about when I take a tour and they stop and ask me questions about what my interests are, uh, wow, what, what was the first time I've heard of the why, I've ever been in the why, do I know what the why stands for? And I start to get excited and I start to perk up. They begin to listen. Who is listening at your YMCA? In development, we listen sometimes, right? As our front, step, front desk staff listening, I had a, um, a situation where 
and one of our front desk people uh, was the 4 a.m. 4 we opened. 4, 4 a.m. Uh, we had some third shift folks coming off the third shift. So for that for that branch, it made sense for them to open at 4 a.m. so those folks could come and, and do their laps and all that stuff at 4 a.m. Um, and I had to open that branch a few times at 4 a.m. That's not much fun at, at 4 a.m. Um, <laughs> 4 a.m. Yeah, I think it was 4 a.m. But one of the things that, that I thought was most amazing is that the, the woman who worked that had been with the Y for 16 years. Uh, and, and she said, hey, Jim, I, I came in that morning at 9, at 9 a.m. Um, she said, hey, Jim, you need to come, in, uh, come one morning to meet this guy. This guy comes in every single day. Uh, and I just started talking to him. Found out that he owns uh, a little company here in town, and he doesn't have any kids, and he doesn't have any family. Um, and he started at the Y back in World War II because that was part of the USO, and they brought him in, and, and he became part of the Y. And he really loves the Y, and he doesn't know what he's going to do with this estate when he dies. I found this out from a person who opens our branch at at 4 a.m. And works until 8 a.m. every morning. She knew that much about somebody whose name, by the way, I had never heard. Who's someone who had never given. So I did go in and sit down one morning at 4 a.m. with him, and I talked to him. And you know what I found out? Why he hadn't given to us? Nobody asked him. Of course, I, I did that morning. Um, and so he left us a million dollars in his will. Okay, that, that doesn't happen every day, right? Don't think that you're going to go into 4 a.m. and get a million dollars. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> the fact is, that person listened. She listened for the right things, and, and she got to know this person, and she took that information that she collected and passed it to the right people. That does it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Steve McLaughlin, Melanie Malonis, Tom Knox, and Jim Bush for joining us. We would love to hear your feedback, so if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, just drop us a line at thebodcast at blackbod.com. We've got some great content already recorded for Episode 3, so be sure to check it out in a couple weeks. Until then, I'm Chad Norman, and thanks for listening to The Bodcast.